Thank you, Pastor Toman. Let's take our Bibles this morning and let's turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 in your Bibles this morning. Did any of you shovel your driveways this morning? <laughs> There's a couple of you. You love to shovel your driveways, and I know that. You can't have those tracks of snow on your driveways, even though it's going to be 60 by Tuesday or 50 or whatever. Anyway, looking forward to that. Flooding in our yards. Yeah. <laughs> Warmth, right? Warmth. All right, Ephesians chapter 4 in our Bibles. You remember, as we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters were all about the wealth that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, the Apostle Paul went to tremendous lengths, and God, giving Paul the words to write, goes to great lengths so that we'll know that we as believers, those who have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, are not poor spiritually. Sometimes people go through life, and life can be challenging, to say the least, sometimes very hard, heartbreaking, uh, sorrowful. Uh, Sometimes it's full of joy and enthusiasm, but life is hard. It has its ups and downs. And sometimes God's people, people who are saved, even find themselves going through life with a discouraged attitude, an attitude of hopelessness in some way, even sometimes despairing of life. I can't go on. I can't take it anymore. And, uh, and God wants us to know, and we've studied it in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, that you as a believer have everything that you need for what you're facing in life. You're rich. You are rich in the Lord Jesus Christ. And look, in fact, back to chapter 3 in verse number Let's see, verse number 14, because Paul prays this way. He's in prison, he's writing from prison, and he's praying for the church at Ephesus. And notice he says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, notice what Paul prayed for, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit, in the inner man. To be, he prayed that we'd be strengthened by his Holy Spirit. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ. That's, he's talking about that you would experience the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. And then he says in verses 20 and 21, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. And he's talking about about us in our personal spiritual lives. Um, If I were to ask you what what your vision for your life is, what's your goal for your life? What what do you want to accomplish in life? Some of you might talk financial. Uh, matters. You might say, well, this is my goal. I'd like to retire, and I'd like to have this much saved. I'd like to be able to go here and do that and buy that. Others are going to talk health-wise. You, you talk about physical things. You know, I, I would just like to be able to sing again the way I used to be able to sing. Or, or maybe a relationship-wise. Well, these are our goals for this particular relationship. These are my goals for our children. We, a lot of goals in life. What are your goals... In life spiritually, and, and sometimes when we look at, at life and things that we'd like to overcome, we find ourselves in a situation where we're not sure we can. 
I, 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 Seth, I know what I'd like to see happen, but I've gotten to the point where, frankly, I've just about given up. And I love the verse there in verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or even think. God's able to do this according to the power that worketh in us. God's power working in us unto him, he says in verse 21. Be glory, honor in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. So that, he really ends with an emphasis on you have what you need. You have the Spirit of God living within you. You have Christ living within you. You, as a born-again child of God, ought to be rooted and grounded in love. And Paul was praying to this end, and he's saying, I want you to know the fullness of God in you. You have what you need. And then he comes to chapter 4. In the beginning of chapter 4, he, he begins to make some application. You're rich. You have what you need. Now, this is what I want you to accomplish with what you have. Look at verse 1. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I'm pleading you, please do this, that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And the emphasis of chapter 4 is the unity of the body of Christ. Trinity Baptist Church is full of people that are different. We've got young, we have old. We have mature and immature. And I'm talking about believers, some who have only been saved a short period of time. Others who have been saved for 50 or 60 years. Some of you know the Bible very well. Others of you are still using the the beginning, the index there, to find the books of the Bible. And that's okay. By the way, I'm telling you, a healthy church has the spectrum. We have folks who might have more money and folks who have less, perhaps. Some whose health is very solid and others whose health is failing. As I taught my Sunday school class this morning, we talked about just a little bit what the makeup of Trinity Baptist Church is in the auditorium. We have people with all these different backgrounds, but the reality is all of us, all of us, sinners, all of us deserving death and hell, and I include myself in that, all of us deserving death and hell for all of eternity. And Jesus Christ saved us by his blood. And so though we are so different, there's such variety in this auditorium, there is also a tremendous unity, a oneness, and we find that oneness in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul now, he says, not only do you have everything that you need, but I want you to know this, you have a calling as an individual believer, as a child of God. As a member of a church, you have a calling. And what is that calling? He says in verse number two, we're to strive for this unity of the spirit. But notice how we're to strive with all lowliness. That word lowliness means humility. I'll apply it to me. Seth, don't think more of yourself than you ought to. But I could also say, Seth, don't think less of yourself than you ought to. Be honest about who you are. This is who you are, a sinner saved by the grace of God. And God's given you some gifts and abilities, and he wants you to, he wants you to serve his body, the, Lord, the, the local church. And that's not just for me, that's for you too. Humility, lowliness of mind. And then he says, and meekness. And I remember as I preached through this, I asked you men, how many of you would like to be called meek? He's a meek man. I mean, that's not the first thing that comes to our mind. We like it when our wives look at us and say, wow, you're so strong. 
Been a while. For some of you, I, I don't know about me. We like that, don't we? Um, but meekness, and we, 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 we're not going to take time to go back, but meekness, Christ was meek. Moses was meek. Moses was a tremendous leader. He was a very, I would say, a powerful individual, but he was meek. Meekness is quiet strength. It doesn't have to be bombastic, large and in charge, quick to speak, loud mouth, let me tell you how great I am. Meekness, no, is a quiet strength, something you and I ought to strive for. And it ought to be something that every one of us work at in our personal lives. God wants us to be humble, lowliness, meekness, and then long-suffering. Long-suffering. The word long-suffering means to suffer long. How many of us like to suffer? How many of you are a part of a church because you want to suffer in some way? No, nobody. We don't come to church to suffer. You say, but when you preach that long, I do, I suffer. It's a suffering. One, one elderly gentleman years ago when I was in evangelism, he said to me after the sermon, he said, the mind was willing, but the seat was not. <laughs> I don't know what he exactly meant by that, but I think we get the idea. You know, we don't come to church to suffer, uh, but I'm telling you, that if you're around people enough, you know that sometimes we can rub each other the wrong way, or it's just people, you know, you have it in your family, you misunderstand, or somebody, somebody says something and maybe they shouldn't, or do something they shouldn't. And uh, sometimes you need to suffer long. You ought to, be, you ought to be willing to suffer long in your marriage. You ought to be willing to suffer long with your children. Children, you ought to be willing to suffer along with your parents. I can remember my daddy telling me when I was a little boy, and I'm the oldest of the four children in my family, he used to say, he'd ask me to forgive him for something or on occasion, and then he would, uh, he would say, Seth, you're my firstborn. I've never done this before. And really what he was saying was, would you suffer along with me? I'm learning. And maybe some of us daddies ought to talk to our children that way. You know, any family that stays together and is a vibrant family, we can look at it from the outside and say, wow, boy, they got everything together. What a great family that is. But frankly, any family, any family, if we were to be able to look inside, every family goes through disagreements and hardships and daddies make mistakes and mommies make mistakes and children make mistakes. It's a part of life. And you know what? The same is true for a family, a church family. I'm not perfect. Pastoral staff isn't perfect. The deacons aren't perfect. You all knew that. They are not perfect. And you know what? You're not perfect either. So suffer long with each other. And then he says forbearing one another in love. Forbearing, that word forbearing has the idea of putting up with one another. You've got to put up with each other a little bit. I'm not saying to overlook sin or doctrinal error, false teaching. I'm not saying to overlook those things. But, you know, we have to put up with each other a little bit. It's interesting how practical God makes this for you and for me. He says, uh, I want you, in verse 1, to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. And that vocation that you've been called to, that I've been called to. I'm not saying you're called to pastor, but as a saved person who's part of a church, you, you have a responsibility. 
And that's to be humble, to be, have quiet strength, to be willing to suffer at times, to put up with each other in sacrificial love. And then he says, endeavoring. It's something we have to work at. You can't stop endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. And of course, we know as we've been studying a couple of weeks ago, we looked at verses 11 and 12 about how God gave some gifts. Christ gave some gifts to the local church to help the body of believers to accomplish and walk worthy of the calling that God has given to us. Notice in verse number 11, he says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets. And and we believe that apostles and prophets are no longer in use today because we have the completed word of God before us. But we do believe that evangelists are still used, and God has given us evangelists and some pastors and teachers. For what purpose? Look at verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints. I thought about entitling the message today, The Perfect Church. That's almost worth laughing at right there, just the title. The Perfect Church. You know there isn't, in a sense, there's no perfect church. I've heard it said before, in the moment you find the perfect church, it won't be perfect anymore because you'll be there. Right? Perfect church. But God gives these pastors and teachers and evangelists in his word, in his spirit, back in chapter 3, and Christ living within us, and us being rooted and grounded in love, and having the fullness of God. He gives us all of this so that he can... You remember that word perfecting. Do you remember what it means? Anybody remember what it means? Maturing, I think I heard it. I'll give it to you if you said something else. Maturing. He wants us as believers to mature. You see it there in verse 12. The perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, to equip the saints for the edifying of the body of Christ, that we would edify one another. That we would, the word edify means to build each other up. Have you ever been built up by a fellow believer? Have you ever had a fellow believer encourage you? Not necessarily even with words, but by actions. By, may, by maybe watching their faithfulness or seeing their sacrifice. There's some people within our church right now who are enduring uh, grievous illnesses. And if God doesn't intervene, it'll be said that that illness took their life. And... Uh, as a pastor, as a fellow member, I don't, I'm not, I don't have that illness. I don't have that disease. And I find myself sitting back sometimes and I observe and I watch you go through life. And many of you are tremendous encouragements to me. You, you build me up. You strengthen me. You encourage me by you doing the right things and having the right attitudes and enduring hardness when, frankly... I look at your situations sometimes and I ask myself the question, would I be persevering the way they're persevering? Or would I be throwing in the towel? In fact, something came to my attention the other day and I said to my wife, I said, honey, I don't know. I don't know if I could make it through that. I don't know that I could make it through that. Now we know that God gives us the grace that we need, each one of us individually, the grace that we need to go through the different trials and challenges that we're going through. But, you know, we can, we can edify one another. The body of Christ needs to be built up that way. And, and so I asked this question, and this will be the question we'll answer this morning in the time that we have, and that is, so what's the point? 
What's the point of what's the point of church? What is God after? Okay, he's he we are, we're rich in Christ. We have everything that we need, and that's a long study. Those first three chapters, and I'm not going to go back and review it all. But you've been strengthened by the Holy Spirit of God. Paul prayed for that. You have the Spirit of God. You have Christ living within you. You're rooted and grounded in love. Um, you, you have the fullness of God within you. Paul prayed toward that end for that church. And he's given you gifts to preach the word of God to you so that you'll grow in him, so that you'll be mature. And so what's the point? Um, some of us have that attitude when it comes to physical exercise. What's the point? Why should I go to the gym? Why get on a treadmill? Why lift those weights? Why go on that diet? What's the point? Why stop drinking Mountain Dew? And as those of us, we get into our later 30s and our early 40s, we start to realize there's a point. We have to. We're starting to creak. We, we get up and we walk like this for a while, you know. And then we go, ah, now we know why. Other people's parents talk like that. Now we know why the diets are there and these sort of things. What's the point? Of course, if you go work out, you're working out for a reason because the way you are right now needs some changing. And going out and going through a workout routine and being disciplined in that routine can lead to some changes, some positive physical changes in your body or in your cardiovascular system or in your blood pressure or your cholesterol or whatever, right? The diet, you change those things and you're disciplined in the diet so some things can change in you physically and become more healthy. And so my question is, what is the point of church? God's given pastors and teachers, he's given evangelists to help mature us as individuals. Spiritually. Spiritual nourishment. Spiritual disciplines that can help us to lead lives that are honoring to God, glorifying to God. Notice how he puts it in verse number 13. And I'll read down through verse number 16. He says this, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. That's what he's after. It's not sinless perfection he's talking about. He's talking about maturity. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. What's the point? We, when we were born into this world as little babies... Some of us were cuter than others, but we were all sinners. And as we've grown in this life, we all are very familiar with our sin nature. Much of the world today goes about their business. Church is not a part of their life. The word of God is not a part of their life. God, from their perspective, is not a part of their life. They don't believe they need him. They don't believe they need what he says. They go about their lives. 
and there's something missing. We gather ourselves together as believers because we recognize we have a need. And only God can accomplish that need. He saved us from death and hell, but we still have a need. And that is met by the word of God and the spirit of God working in our lives. To grow us into being who he wants us to be. So what's the point? Well, number one, a church that is maturing is a church that is unified. A church that is mature is a church that is unified. There are three thoughts that I'll give to you this morning. A church that is mature is unified, number one. A church that is mature is stable, number two. And a church that is mature is a church that is sincere, sincere. And without the teaching of the word of God, without the gifts, without the power of God, none of this is possible. So he's going to get very practical and he's going to talk. He's going to actually describe what a church that is pleasing to God looks like. A church that is mature, a church that is pleasing to God is unified. They're in unity. Notice verse number 13 again, the beginning part. He says, till we all come in the unity of the faith. He says, I want you to be matured. I want you to be perfected. I want you to grow up. And I, and I want this to take place till we all come in the unity of the faith. The, the church at Ephesus is the church that this letter was written to that we're studying. But there was another church not too far away. It was the church at Corinth. It was a, a city, city of Corinth. And the church at Corinth, and think, when you think of church, don't think building or steeple or uh, programs. Think Think this, believe people who are saved gathering together some almost 2,000 years ago. And the church at Corinth was an immature church. They were babes in the Lord. They were immature. And because of their immaturity, they struggled with a a number of things. One of them was divisions or strife, uh, frustration within the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul wrote to them and he said this, Now I beseech you, I'm pleading with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. Be unified, be united, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, that them which are of the house of Chloe... How would you like to be her or him? It's probably a him, Chloe. Uh, How would you like to be called out in the Bible by name? (laughs) Not me. Okay. Uh, And he says it this way. This has come to Paul's ears that them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. The The Lord knew what that church was like, the church of Corinth. He knew where the contentions were. He knew where the pride was. Remember, only by pride cometh contentions. Why doesn't a husband and wife get along? Because of pride. Why don't, you, why, why don't children and parents get along? Because of pride. Why don't church members get along? Because of pride. Only by pride cometh contention. And, and as God looked down at the church at Corinth, And he looks down and he walks within the midst of Trinity Baptist Church as well. And he sees what truly is. You know, God wants a church that is united. We can all try all we want to create this unity. And that's not what I'm advocating. That we all willing to compromise anything and everything to create unity. That's not what I'm talking about at all. 
we can try all we want to create unity and come up short of what God is looking for. You see, the unity that God desires is the unity of the faith. And you see it, that's how he writes it in verse number 13, the unity of the faith. God wants us to be maturing in God's word. He wants us to be growing in his word, serving the Lord, building up the body of Christ because it results in a church that is united in the faith. As each member is being built up in the word of God, there is a growing maturity. The whole body becomes more mature and is brought into a wonderful unity, a a wonderful unity, oneness. See, as I say yes to the word of God in my personal life, my wife says yes to the word of God in her personal life, we grow closer together. As I say yes to the word of God in my personal life and the spirit of God in my life, and and Mr. Neuker says yes to the word of God in his personal life, we grow closer together. See, divisions rise up in a church when Mr. Neuker is saying yes to the Lord in his personal life, but I'm saying no to the Lord in my personal life. We can, still, we can still dress up and come to church, but there's a division there. There's a separation because he's following the Lord and I'm not, for sake of illustration. When you and I say yes to the, the word of God and the spirit of God, then God's people come closer and closer and closer together in unity. There's a deep fellowship, a partnership with Christ. How many of you want to be on the same side as the Lord Jesus Christ and be partnering with him to accomplish what he wants? How many of you, how many for you, that's your desire? Can I see your hands? Okay, you may put them down. I mean, that's a really good question. But when you and I say no to his word and no to his spirit, we're saying no to him. Look at verse number 13, the middle part. He continues, he says, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, Paul isn't just talking about this basic knowledge. I can quote Williams learning the books of the Bible. We have the books of the Bible on CD, and he sings a song, you know, and, and it's really cute to hear him do it. I mean, he's only five, and he doesn't have the greatest articulation in the world. And some of the books of the Bible, I don't know, Mr. Baker, were you the one that heard him sing them? Okay. And I thought Mr. Baker might have been giving him a little bit of slack on those. Some of those, they were, I, I said, what did you say? <laughs> you know? But he had the right tune anyway. But he's learning the books of the Bible. And uh, uh, he, he, Paul's not talking about learning the books of the Bible or learning different doctrines. Now, knowledge is a good thing. Knowing the word of God is very important. But he's actually talking about an experiential sort of knowledge. Uh, hold your place in Ephesians and look over to Philippians chapter 3. It's turned to the right in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 10. Our Heavenly Father wants us to experience, in a sense, what Christ has experienced, victory over sin, victory over temptation. Notice in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 10, Paul talks here about the same thing only more personally about himself, he says that I may know him. Speaking, Paul's saying, I want to know Christ. Paul was already saved, but he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Paul says, I want to know the victory that can only come through Christ in my life and the fellowship, the partnership of his sufferings. You know, you and I can go through sufferings in this, this life one of two ways. Most likely, we're all going to go through it to some degree, but we can go through sufferings in one of two ways. We can go through sufferings and learn nothing from it 
and, and become alienated from God more because of our rebellion against him and his sovereignty in our lives. We can resent him for allowing these things to happen to us. Or we can go through suffering and trials in this life the way Christ did, saying to God the Father, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. God, I recognize that you created me, that I belong to you, you saved me, that you've made everything, that everything that I have comes from you. And Lord, I don't understand why I have to go through this, but Lord, help me to draw closer to you as I go through this. Help me to know you more as I go through this life. You see, there's a difference. And I know in my own personal life, I find myself at times, and I'm confronted with that fork in the road. I can go one of two routes. Notice he continues in verse number 10. The fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Conformable unto his death. The word conformable means to render like. It's like a sketch of someone. In this case, of Christ, of his death. Um, His death, Christ's death, was one of obedience to his father. It was one of submission to what his father wanted to accomplish in his life. And Paul says, I want to know Christ. I just don't want to know about him. I just don't want to be able to quote some of the books of the Bible and some verses here and there and attend church services from, some t- from time to time. I want to know Christ. I want to know him experientially. I want to know what it is to submit my will to my heavenly father and, 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 and honor him and obey him and let God have his way in my life. And that's what Paul's talking about here back in our text in Ephesians chapter 4. In verse number 13, he says, I want you to have the knowledge of the Son of God. Paul's talking about knowing Christ through experience. He's not talking about a superficial knowledge. Look at verse number 13, the latter part. He continues, till we all come into the unity of the faith, in the beginning of verse 13, in the middle, he says, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man. That's a mature person, a mature believer, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. As we, as individuals, find ourselves becoming more like Christ, the body grows closer together. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory, the honor of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of God changes us from within into who we ought to be. And so it comes down to this. Am I receiving what the Word of God is saying? Now, let's break this down for a moment. You can't receive something unless you're, you're reading it or unless you're hearing it preached. Do you take advantage of Sunday school? The Word of God is being taught. You can receive it there. Are you taking advantage of Sunday morning services in a disciplined way? Be disciplined in it. Don't be like the guy who goes to the gym one time and never goes again. Years ago, uh, my brother Nathan, and Nathan is fit as a fiddle, okay? Uh, he used to be a little pudgy and, and curly red hair, and, and we used to wrestle, and, and I, he teases me to this day about teasing him growing up. And Well, now he's, he'll still say, Seth, hey, you want to wrestle? I'm like, no, I don't want to wrestle. <laughs> don't touch me. <laughs> I mean, he could hurt me in a heartbeat. And years ago, Cindy and I hadn't been married very long, and, and uh, I, he asked me what I wanted for Christmas, and I said, I'd like some push-up bars. 
And uh, so he gave me some push-up bars for Christmas. And, uh, and if you're into working out at all, you know you've got to give the muscles rest from time to time, right? You've got to allow them to recuperate. When you exert yourself with those and, and using your muscles, they begin to stretch and even in some cases rupture to some degree. And you've got to allow the muscles time to heal. And that's how they grow and they grow strong. And so uh, I use the push-up bars, you know. And, and uh, of course, push-up bars, it, it's going to allow for... Uh, better muscle development or something like that. And so I'm using the push-up bars, and I used them one day, and, and uh, I used them another day, and used them another day, and then I told Cindy, I need to give my body a break, you know, from push-up bars. And the joke to this day is, three days on, the rest of your life off. Because <laughs> that's what happened. I used them three days in a row, and then I was going to take a day off, and I've never done a push-up on those push-up bars again. And it's a joke. And Cindy will tease me to this day. Three days on, the rest of your life off. Is that another one of these push-up bars type of thing? Hey, listen, it's one thing. Body, bodily exercise profiteth little, okay? It does profit. It does profit. But you know what? Spiritual things are even more important. Some of us, some of us have let our physical bodies go, and it's hurt us physically. But you know what? It's even a greater loss when you and I let our spiritual lives go and it hurts us long-term spiritually. Be disciplined. Be disciplined in the Word of God. Read it. We have the feature devotional. They're a, they're a buck. Uh, they're worth a whole lot more than that. Read them, read them one every day. Get in the Word of God. Pray, Lord, help me to understand your Word and pray. And you know what? If you don't understand it, go to a godly person in the church uh, and, and ask them, what does this mean? Put yourself in Sunday school. Put yourself in the Sunday morning service. Discipline yourself. You say, I don't feel like going. There are times I don't feel like going. (gasps) You know, you've heard him. You can only take so much. On Sunday nights, William, he asked today before we got out of the van to come into church, he said, are we coming back tonight? And Cindy said, well, no, we're not coming back tonight. And she was about to say we're having an afternoon service. And he was like, yay! <laughs> He's five. He doesn't have the discipline. So I don't know where you are spiritually, but you've got to begin somewhere and do what you know is right in building some spiritual disciplines. He wants us to grow and mature. Christ-likeness, a, a perfect man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In our home, we have... On the back side of one of the doors, when you open it up and the hinges show, there's a spot where I measured the children. And I've got to measure them again here coming up. They have all grown like two inches in the last year. It's amazing. But you know what? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to watch a child grow and develop? They get some exercise and they have the right diet, and even some of the wrong diet for that matter. But they grow. And, and things they couldn't do, they, they can do now. One of, the, one of the boys, as they were developing their arm and throwing, I used to love, I used to do this to Pastor Scott. He had a ball in his office. I'd say, hey, I'd say, take my, tell my boy, hey, go throw this to Pastor Scott in his office. Because I was really hoping he'd just wind up and just fire it, you know. And, uh, you know, Pastor Scott's like, throw me the ball. You know, anyhow. But it's wonderful how they grow. It's, it's wonderful how they... I do that to my dad, too. 
It's wonderful how they grow. And you know what? It's also wonderful to see a believer grow in the Lord. I've been growing my whole life. There have been periods of my life where I've been, I've kind of plateaued and kind of flattened, flatlined a little bit, you know. And really, you're starting to go backwards, start atrophying spiritually. There are times you're going to have to endure. You're going to have to grow into the fullness. What does he want us to grow into? The fullness of Christ? The fullness of Christ. You see, as we receive the word of God, the Holy Spirit of God changes us into the image of Jesus Christ. As we grow in the word of God, we, the closer we walk with him. The deeper our fellowship, our partnership with Christ is the more that we resemble him. Literally until we are transformed into his image. And what's the outcome? Well, as we humbly receive the word of God, we mature. Our fellowship with Christ deepens. Our Christ-likeness abounds. And God's local church draws closer together. And that's what he's talking about in this context. And so the purpose, the Lord has purposed for us to represent Christ. He's purposed for us to represent Christ here in Flushing, Michigan. And my question is, are they seeing him? He's purposed for your co-workers to see Christ through you. Let's make it more personal. He wants your spouse to see Christ in you. Sometimes, sometimes we all, we all at times fail. We all at times walk in the flesh. And I mean, we live in the same home with our spouse, but we do not encourage our spouse. With our quick temper, our selfish attitude, self-centeredness. And that's not Christ-like. You see, as we humble ourselves and we receive his word, it changes us into the image of Christ. Wouldn't it be great if, if our spouse, if you, if me, if I, would walk in the spirit and my wife... Could enjoy the fruit of the Spirit through her husband, Seth Ferguson. See, that's what God wants. God wants Cindy to be encouraged to continue following the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ through me. And He wants that for you. And He wants us to do it this way to one another. God is not satisfied that people, that we just go to church. We are the church. We are his bride. If you're a child of God, if you're born again, you're to be a part of a local assembly of believers. God's not just looking for people who merely participate in programs who are stuck in their spiritual growth. I've got to tell you, that's a fear of mine. It is. It's a fear of mine that we'd, 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 uh, we'd perform church, put on a play. You know, we have a service. Everything's organized. I get up to preach about the same time and get done just about the same time. And you come and you sit in the same seats and we, we go through the motions. We perform. We participate in the same ministries and we go through the motions. That's not what God's after, going through the motions. He wants us to be genuine and sincere and real. He wants us to be united by the word of God, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know, it'd be sad if William stopped growing about now. It would be. Wouldn't it? You'd all look at him if in five years from now he was the same height he is now. and hadn't grown anymore. His speech hadn't developed and 
he wasn't able to move on in grades, you'd all look at him and you'd say, oh, he's cute, and he's maybe, I don't know what his temperament would be, but maybe he has a good temperament, let's just say that. And you'd say, he's such a sweet boy, but so sad. I wonder what he could have been. I wonder what he could have done. You know, that's, that is an application for you and for me as, as believers. Don't, don't let yourself plateau spiritually and just kind of level off and that's just all the further you're going. Let God have his way in your life. Let him take you as far as he wants to take you. Let him accomplish all that he wants to accomplish in you. Notice in verse 14, stability comes with maturity. Unity comes with maturity, but also stability. God wants the church to be stable. Look at verse 14. He says that we henceforth be no children, no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. When we, when we read verse 14 there, and, and let your eyes work over it a little bit, you see the term children, it, it has the idea of one who's not old enough to speak. We get a very clear picture of what God does not want for Trinity Baptist Church. Paul had warned Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul warned the church at Rome in Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine, the teaching which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they are such they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. They want to do their own will. They want to do what they want. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Who is it really that gets carried about with every wind of doctrine by false teachers? And the answer is children. If you were to tell my, my son William Santa Claus was real, and if I were to tell him, if I were to tell him, I don't know if he'd believe you, if I were to tell him Santa Claus was real, and if your child still believes in Santa Claus here right now, plug their ears for just a moment. But if I were to teach William that Santa Claus was real, then... He'd believe me. If I told him Santa Claus could save his soul from death and hell, he would believe me. He's a child. And you know, within the body of believers, there are those that are older and mature, children of God, and there are others that are just starting out in their Christian walk. And by the way, those of us who may have been saved a lot longer, and you may know the word of God very well, you and I need to have a responsibility to pray for individuals who are newly saved. Because there's nothing that Satan would like more than to bring in some false teaching across their path that they would get off track and begin to follow something that is not true. Children are gullible. Children are easily swayed. They're undiscerning. A 17-month-old doesn't show much discernment in what they put in their mouth. Crawling around the house. God wants us to be discerning as to what we believe. God wants us to grow up. And that was the real problem in the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 1, Paul wrote, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. And to the church in Ephesus, he says, in verse number 14, notice the beginning part, he says that we henceforth, from now on, be no more children, 
By the way, it's not a bad thing to be a baby believer. It's not. It's not a bad thing. And, and if you're just saved here this morning, if you've not been saved very long, don't please don't think, boy, Pastor Ferguson's not, uh, disappointed me. I'm not disappointed in you at all. I think it's wonderful that you're saved. But here's the thing. All of us who have been saved need to continue to grow, whether we've been saved 20 years or whether we've been saved for a month. It's not a bad thing to be a baby believer, but it's a tragedy when a child is malnourished, mistreated, to the point that it stunts a child's growth and impairs that child's thinking and makes them vulnerable to the lies of the devil. God wants us to stand firm. Notice verse 14, the middle part. He says, toss to and fro. In other words, wrong doctrine and errors in judgment are compared to violent winds, tossed waves being tossed to and fro. Paul uses an analogy here. In verse 14, and he likens wind-driven waves to immature believers, young believers. And, and really, a young believer faces his own constantly changing opinions. One day, he may wake up and, and, and feel like he's walking on, the, on a cloud, and everything's great, and, and the Lord seems very real in his life, and he's so excited about what God's doing. And then the next day, or two days later, things are unraveling in his life, and he's wondering... Did I believe the right thing? Did I do it the right way? Is this really real? What's going on? And the reality is a young believer hasn't mastered Bible study. His convictions aren't firmly fixed upon the bedrock truths of the Bible. A spiritual babe will often espouse one viewpoint for a while, then discard it and adopt another. And notice again in verse 14, the latter part, he's carried about with every wind of doctrine. And and Paul is painting a picture of a helpless babe being taken here and there by different schools of thought. By the slight of men, he says, in cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. In in those words, there really are four descriptions of spiritual deception. The slight of men. The word slight comes from the Greek word kubea. Kubea, cube. We get our English word cube from it. Dice. The slight of men. Fraud, cheating is the idea. Cunning craftiness has the idea of a subtle deviousness. Uh, To lie in wait has the idea of an ambush or trickery. And to deceive means to be led astray into error. And the evil one is behind all of it, for he is is a liar and the father of all lies. Christ's purpose for his body is that we would know the word, that we would stand firmly together, and that we wouldn't get blown around with all the false winds of doctrine. Paul told Titus, speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. You you need to preach it, you need to speak it. One last thought in verse 15, and that's we need to be sincere. So the mature church is unified, it's stable, and it's sincere. Notice verse number 15, he says, but speaking the truth in love. May grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. I can remember, I even think this year, uh, the, Russian, the Russians in the Olympic were somehow not allowed to fly their flag, but yet compete. I'm not sure exactly how it works for something. But I can remember, it seems to have gone on for some time, because when I was a young person, I can remember, uh, I think it might have been Russia that was convicted, convicted of doping, and, and it wasn't sincere. They were competing. They could win on the track, but it was insincere how they had gotten there. It was deceptive how they had gotten there. They were pretending that they were this caliber of athlete when actually they weren't that caliber of athlete. They took a shortcut to get there. 
Well, God wants us to grow up, you see it in verse 15, into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. And he tells us, in a sense, how we need to get there. He's given us gifts, he's given us his power, but he tells us, he gives us some very specific instruction about what we should say. And he tells us we need to speak the truth in love. So I ask you, do you speak the truth? Are you a person who tells the truth? And are you a person who loves others? the, The goal here is that we would grow up into the stature of Christ. The goal is that little William will grow up or... Uh, Grant and Evan, that they'll grow up into the stature of Phil. It's sad if if they don't grow up into that. Something's not wrong. Well, God wants you and I to grow up into the the stature, the measure, the fullness of Christ. That's what he wants. Some of you have been saved for a short period of time. God wants you to grow up into the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. The truth is to be spoken. The the simple, unvarnished truth. No special wax. And by the way, this is the way to avoid error. This is the way to protect others from error. It's in opposition to all the deception of this world. Christians, we're to speak the simple truth and nothing but the truth. And by the way, the truth is the antidote for lies. The truth is the antidote for deception. Shine more light of the truth on the matter. Tell the truth. Believe the truth. Repeat the truth. Don't repeat lies. Every statement we make should be the unvarnished truth. Every promise we make should be true. Truth is telling the things, telling things the way they are. But friends, truth needs to be spoken in love. And that's what he says in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love. There's no way you and I are going to grow up into the measure of the fullness of Jesus Christ unless we speak the truth in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there are different ways of speaking truth. Truth can be spoken in a harsh manner. This, this week, Cindy, you know, gently chided me and how I was speaking to one of my daughters. She said, you can be kinder. Yeah. It's kind of hard to take good though, isn't it? Needed to hear it. Truth can be spoken in a crabby manner, or we can speak it in love. When we speak truth to others, folks, it ought to always be in love. John Phillips, the commentator, writes this, and I'll quote him. He says, quote, we can go to two extremes when speaking the truth. We can speak the truth, but not in love, in which case we are being ungracious. Truth spoken in that spirit often offends and does little good because it alienates the people we're seeking to win. Or we can speak in love and we can suppress the truth, in which case we are being unfaithful. People who do not want to hurt someone's feelings may say nothing at all and allow a sinful situation to continue, end quote. So as Christians, we should always speak the truth in love. As a pastor, I need to preach the truth of the Word of God Sometimes, and I'll use it this way, the awful truth of the Word of God. Now, I, I, I don't know if I should say it that way, because all truth is wonderful, but yet some truths are hard to digest. 
This morning in Sunday school, we were talking about giving the gospel to those that we love, and we were talking about the reality of hell. And there is a place called hell. There is a place of eternal judgment. And it doesn't matter if I wish it didn't exist or not. The Bible says it's there and it's true. But you know what? We, we can talk about things that we ought. We must speak the truth, but we must speak it in love. We must take the gospel to the lost. The truth and love, there are two great hindrances, I think, to evangelism. One is not speaking the truth because we're too busy or we're too afraid or we care too much what people think. And the other hindrance to evangelism, I think, is that we don't care if they perish or not. A man wrote, he has done about half his work in convincing another of error who has first convinced him that he loves him. And if he does not do that, he may argue to the hour of his death and make no progress in convincing him. Look at verse number 16 as we finish up this morning. And and I want you to notice this wonderful description of the body of Christ that Christ is putting together. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body, he's talking about us who are saved, the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love. You see, the power to accomplish God's purpose for the church is not found in our abilities. The power is found in Christ. All the body parts, all the members of the church come together because of his power, not ours. The whole body, look at verse 16 there, the whole body fitly joined together. Some are the eyes, and some are the ears, and some are the hands and feet. Compacted means firmly knit, so as not to be separated. By that which every joint supplieth, uh, a knee is joined together, an elbow. You know, we have these ligaments and different parts of the body that God has made so beautifully to unite the body so it works as one and does what we, what we want it to do. God wants to do that to, to us. He wants to use you. He wants to use me. And think of it in light of this, of who we used to be, sinners deserving of death and hell, and yet God wants to use us. According to the effectual working, that's Christ in us, the measure of every part, every body part needed, maketh increase unto the edifying of itself in love. Twice in the last two verses, Paul emphasizes love. God emphasizes love. And by the time the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, they were about to become, that is the church at Ephesus was about to become extinct because they had left their first love. Christ complimented their stand for the truth. He complimented their hard work, but Christ let them know that he knew that they didn't love him anymore. And they had walked away from him. And let us each ask God to have his way in our lives. The power to accomplish God's purpose for the church is not found in our abilities. The power is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. As God uses his word, and here's what he wants to do. He wants to use his word by his spirit and the gifts he's given for your benefit in your life and in my life to help us grow up. And as we grow up, there will be unity in the church. There will be stability in the church. There will be sincerity in the church. Who, who likes insincerity? No one likes that. God wants there to be unity, stability, and sincerity. 
And it all is accomplished by Christ working in us. And you and me saying yes to him and yes to his word. I'm going to ask Pastor Toman.